Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast or my other podcasts, you can for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can also support the podcast by a donation by going to my website, CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. As well, I have launched two new podcasts this week. The first, launched yesterday, it's called From John to Justin, and it's all about every single Prime Minister, from Sir John A. Macdonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. Yesterday, I released my first episode, all about Sir John A. Macdonald. And tomorrow, my other new podcast, Pucks and Cups, where I look at the early history of hockey in Canada, up from the 1800s to about the 1960s. And the first episode looks at Phantom Joe Malone, the greatest goal scorer in NHL history. Over the past 100 years, women have made huge inroads into politics. Beginning with the ability for women to vote in provincial and federal elections in the late 1910s and early 1920s, all the way up to today with our first female Minister of Finance. Many things have changed. Today on the podcast, I want to look at some of the women who were the first to break through in a political arena, laying the foundation for future women. From the first woman elected to any sort of municipal, provincial, or federal office, all the way up to the first woman to lead our country, there are many great stories to tell. Each of these women deserves their own episode, and over time, they will have that. But today, I just want to look at the many different women who made inroads in the world of politics. The first woman to an elected political position. It was in 1917 when a woman by the name of Hannah Elizabeth Rowlandsall Gale was elected to a political position in Canada. In the process, she became the first woman to be elected to municipal, provincial, or federal politics. Her road to this historic moment started in England, where she was denied entry into Oxford University because she was a woman, despite having passed the Oxford entrance examination. Instead, she began to run the family business following the death of her father, and in 1901 she would marry William Gale, and in 1912 the couple, along with their two sons, moved to Calgary. Upon arriving in Calgary, Gale began to notice the poor quality and high prices of the vegetables in the city. After doing some investigating, she discovered this was because the grocers had contracts with BC producers, which added to the high cost for transportation, while increased transport time made the vegetables of poor quality. Wanting to do something about it, she joined the Consumers League and helped to establish the first farmer's market in the city, where local producers could sell local products. This was only the beginning for her. She would become the secretary of the Free Hospital League after learning many farm women gave birth without proper medical attendance, and she organized Calgary Women's Ratepayers Association, the first of its kind in Canada. The group invited her to run in the 1917 Calgary City election, which she did. In speaking of why she went into politics, Gail would say, quote, I have always believed that the mission of women in political life was to clean up politics. On December 10, 1917, she was elected and became the first woman in Canada elected to such a position. That same year, her fellow members on council elected her acting mayor, making her the first woman to perform the duties of a mayor in the British Empire. Canadian Magazine would write about Gail that year, stating, quote, She is exactly the type of woman who should be in political life. A feminine, gracious, magnetic personality without aggression or bombast. 
a woman with a charming platform manner which does not come off the instant she reaches the bottom step and stands on the floor of the hall, the type of woman of whom the West is justly proud. After coming into municipal politics in 1917, she would be re-elected in 1919 and again in 1921. That same year, she ran in the Alberta provincial election, but was not elected. As can be expected, her advocacy for working families would make her enemies in the city, and those enemies forced her husband to resign from his position with the city engineering department in 1923. Feeling she could not serve council after this, she did not seek re-election. Gail wasn't done with politics, though, and she was elected as a public school trustee for the Calgary Board of Education in 1924. In 1925, she moved to Vancouver, hoping that the coastal climate would improve her husband's health. He would pass away there in 1939. As for Gail, she lived in Vancouver until she passed away in 1970 at the age of 93. In 1983, a school was named after her in Calgary, and in 2016, a boardroom in Calgary City Hall was named for her. There's also a push to have a statue erected outside City Hall. The first woman in the provincial legislature. Around the same time that Hannah Gale was beginning her political career, another woman by the name of Louise McKinney was embarking on a political career that would make her an iconic person in Canadian politics and history. McKinney was born in Frankville, Ontario in 1868, and in 1903 she made the move to Alberta, where she began to live as a homesteader with her family. A year after women were given the right to vote in Alberta in 1916, McKinney would run for a seat in the 1917 Alberta general election in the district of Clare's home. As a candidate for the nonpartisan league, she was able to defeat her liberal opponent, William Moffat. Interestingly, she was one of two women that year to be elected to the Alberta legislature. The other was Roberta McAdams, who was elected following the completion of overseas voting and a count that took place at a later date than in-province voting. McAdams, for her part, would become the first woman to introduce legislation in the British Empire and the first to successfully pass it. The legislation, called Act to Incorporate the Great War Next of Kin Association, would legally recognize a veterans organization. Going back to McKinney, her election was no small feat. She defeated Moffat, the first resident of Clare's home, and at one point, its mayor. McKinney would serve until 1921 when she ran for re-election but lost to the independent farmer candidate Thomas Milnes, another mayor of Clare's home. Her role in Canadian history was not done though. McKinney would become one of the famous five who argued the person's case in 1927, eventually culminating in 1929 with the decision by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council that women were legally recognized as persons and could therefore sit in the Senate of Canada. McKinney was also one of the few of the Famous Five who did not publicly endorse eugenics. I did an episode on the Famous Five back in May that I encourage you to check out. In 1931, she would briefly serve as the President of the Canadian Union and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, while also being named as the Commissioner for the First General Council of the United Church of Canada. Sadly for McKinney, she would pass away in 1931, only two years after the person's case victory. In 1939, she was recognized as a person of national historic significance, and a plaque commemorating her is on display in Clare's home. In 1997, the person's case was recognized as a national historic event, and in 2009, she was named an honorary senator by the Canadian Senate, along with the other four members of the Famous Five. The First Woman in Parliament 
1919, amendments were made to the Elections Act by the federal government, which would pave the way to women serving in the House of Commons. Two years later, the first woman would enter Parliament, and her name was Agnes MacPhail. MacPhail was born in Grey County, Ontario on March 24, 1890, and would go on to attend the Owen Sound Collegiate and Vocational Institute before transferring to the Stratford Normal School. After graduating with a second-class teacher's certificate, she applied for five teaching positions and was accepted to all. While working as a teacher in Sharon, Ontario, she became active in the United Farmers of Ontario and the United Farm Women of Ontario. In 1921, MacPhail was nominated to represent South East Grey County in the House of Commons by the United Farmers of Ontario, who had just won a landslide victory in the Ontario provincial election in 1919. MacPhail won that election and became the first female MP in Canadian history. This was not a one-off election win for MacPhail either. She would go on to serve until 1940 and was involved in several important legislations. In 1924, she opposed the Royal Military College of Canada on the grounds that it taught snobbishness and provided a cheap education to the children of the rich. She would oppose government support of the college as well in 1931, based on her pacifist beliefs. Throughout her time in Parliament, MacPhail was a strong advocate for rural issues and penal reform. Her work in that manner would result in reform in Canadian prisons after the Second World War. Her concern for women in the criminal justice system also led her to found the Elizabeth Fry Society of Canada in 1939. Her campaign to bring prison reform would be highlighted in a Heritage Minute. Your visit isn't really necessary. I'll judge for myself. I know you're an MP, Miss McPhail, but a woman has never... I am not leaving till I do. Civilized. If those appalling conditions don't change, that prison will explode! Perhaps our lone lady member is too fragile to know what is normal in a prison. Is this normal? Her courage would lead to the overhaul of the entire Canadian penal system. Agnes MacPhail, Canada's first woman MP. She would also push for a pension for seniors and workers' rights, while also becoming the first Canadian woman delegate to the League of Nations. And while she was a pacifist, she did vote in favour of Canada entering the Second World War. After losing the 1940 election, she spent time as a journalist writing agricultural columns for the Globe and Mail before going back into politics. In 1943, she was elected in the York East Riding to the Legislative Assembly of Ontario, becoming the first woman along with Ray Lecoq, to be elected to the Ontario Legislature. She was also the first woman to be sworn in as an Ontario MPP. She remained in provincial politics until 1945, then came back and served from 1948 to 1951, and she would pass away in 1954, just after being offered an appointment to the Senate of Canada. In 1948, she appeared on CBC This Week, speaking to a group of students at the University of Toronto. A youth conference on Parliament, and a question vital in the mind of youth. As you heard, Miss McPhail's one of the liveliest of the panel, and with Miss McPhail present, women in politics soon came to the fore. 
but they can't see me, and that's nice. The air audience, they can't see me. But uh, there is no difference that I know of, except that uh, I think either a man or a woman must have had a great interest in public affairs previously, or they wouldn't, no one would think of choosing them, nominating them. They must have shown their interest in some way. Don't you think there'd be more women in the Canadian Parliament if there were more women in municipal offices across this country? Oh, yes. If there were more women in everything of a public nature, there'd be more women candidates. Up to the present time, generally speaking, whenever a woman gets a nomination, she gets a nomination in a constituency where the chances of election are not too hopeful. No, some, some nominations the men don't want. But there's only one Miss McFay. Yes. <laughs> I agree with that. Following her passing, two schools have been named for her in Ontario, and in 1993, on the 50th anniversary of her election to the Ontario Legislature, March 24th was declared Agnes McPhail Day. In 2005, she was voted the greatest Ontario woman and in 2017, she became the first woman other than the sovereign to have a permanent spot on Canadian currency when she appeared alongside George Etienne Cartier, James Gladstone, and Sir John A. Macdonald on a Canada 150 edition of the $10 bill. The first female cabinet minister and speaker in the British Empire. As we have seen a couple times now, Canada has led the way in the British Empire for women going into politics. Mary Ellen Spears-Smith is another person who led the way in the Commonwealth with her work in provincial politics in British Columbia. Originally born in England on October 11, 1861, or 1863, she would marry Ralph Smith, a coal miner, and they would come to British Columbia in 1891 after they had married. Her husband was a trade union leader and would be elected to the British Columbia Legislature in 1898 and then the House of Commons in the 1900 federal election, serving until 1911. He then came back to provincial politics, serving from 1916 to 1917. During all of this, Mary would help him with his political work and campaigns while also making speeches on his behalf when he was unavailable. For her part, she was also involved in activism, including as a member of the Suffrage League of Canada, as president of the Women's Canadian Club, a regent in the Imperial Order Daughters of the Empire, and she was an executive member of the Canadian Red Cross. Following the death of her husband in 1917, she succeeded him in the British Columbia Legislature by winning a by-election in 1918 on the slogan of Women and Children First. She would be re-elected in 1920 and 1924, as an MP, she would introduce a law to establish a minimum wage for women and girls, enact laws to establish juvenile courts, allow women to sit as judges, establish a pension for mothers, and pass laws to protect women in the workplace. Unfortunately, she was also supportive of anti-Asian legislation and eugenics in British Columbia. In 1921, she joined the cabinet of Premier John Oliver as a minister without a portfolio becoming the first female cabinet minister in the British Empire. In 1928, she became the acting speaker of the Legislative Assembly, becoming the first woman to hold the position of speaker in the British Empire. Following her 1928 election loss, she would be appointed as Canada's delegate to the International Labour Organization in Geneva the following year, and she would pass away from a stroke in 1933. The First Female Federal Cabinet Minister we just touched on the first female cabinet minister in Canadian history, 
but now it's time for the first federal female cabinet minister, Ellen Fairclough. Born in Hamilton on January 28, 1905, Ellen Fairclough trained as an accountant and ran an accounting firm before she got into politics. That political career would begin as a member of the Hamilton City Council from 1945 to 1950. In 1949, she ran in the federal election but lost to Colin Gibson of the Liberals in Hamilton West. After Gibson was appointed to the Supreme Court of Ontario in 1950, Fairclough ran again, this time in the by-election, and won. Upon becoming a member of Parliament, Fairclough would begin advocating for women's rights, especially equal pay for equal work. In 1957, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker would appoint her as the Secretary of State of Canada, making her the first female federal cabinet minister. In 1952, she became the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. In that role, she introduced regulations that eliminated racial discrimination from the nation's immigration policy. She also increased the number of immigrants allowed into Canada. Another interesting aspect of her time in the House of Commons was that from February 19th to February 20th, 1958, she was named Acting Prime Minister of Canada, the first woman to have that duty. She would lose the 1963 election and would become the chairperson of Hamilton Hydro. In 1975, she looked back on her career on the CBC program, Look Who's Here. When you did that first election, ran the first time, was it part of a, a well-thought-out plan that that was the beginning of a federal career, or was that ever in your mind at all? It was never in my mind, and it was never in my mind that I would even run for alderman. I rather got pushed into it but uh, by my colleagues who were active party workers and with whom I'd worked for quite a long time. Uh, it's something I didn't foresee. Well, when you went into the House of Commons and you were the only woman there, I wonder how you felt about that. Well, I felt fine about it. Of course, I, I had been in Ottawa a great deal of the time uh, during the war. I was the, uh, in conjunction with my accounting practice, I was the secretary treasurer of the Canadian Wholesale Grocers Association, and this necessitated frequent trips to uh, Ottawa, particularly uh, when the Wartime Prices and Trade Board was riding herd on everyone. So uh, when I would go there, I would um, have a meal or a visit or something with our colleagues in the House, and uh, consequently I got to know Ottawa and the Parliament buildings very well. So it wasn't the same as coming in cold to a new mm -hmm. situation. What sort of uh, memories stand out in your mind from, from 13 years there, really? Are there people you think of often? Are there events that, you know, come to mind unbidden very often? Well, I think there are many, yes. Um, of course, one of the most excruciating experiences was the pipeline debate. That was really dreadful. And uh, one of the people that I admired, although not of my party, was Mr. Caldwell, who was an excellent debater, just excellent. And uh, I uh, admired him greatly. Did you have any sense, you know, you, you were always talked of as the first woman cabinet minister. Yeah. And then for a long time, of course, you were the only woman member, too. Did you ever get tired being sort of held up as the one woman or the first woman? Did it get to be a bit of an obligation? <laughs> oh, I could have cared less because <laughs> I had spent most of my working life working with men and I wasn't at all self-conscious. It didn't bother me. It didn't, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you had three cabinet posts, Secretary of State, Citizenship and Immigration, and Postmaster General. Which of the three was most interesting? Which gave you the most satisfaction? Well, of course, I didn't have the Postmaster General post Not for long. long enough. I think I would have really loved to have had that for an I extended period of time. I wonder if you could say that today. Well, I don't know. It's, it's largely a matter of business in the post office, and, and that's my fort. Um, but from the standpoint of human interest, of course, the Citizenship and Immigration uh, Department was really something. And remember that I was also Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. That was mm -hmm. a part of my responsibility as Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. And I found that fascinating. When the election came along that, uh, in which you lost your seat, how big a disappointment was that? Oh, I think I saw it coming. Um, I could see that um, people were uh, disenchanted with our government. And there's an old saying in Ottawa, you know, that um, governments aren't elected, they're defeated. Mm -hmm. And I think when uh, the people, populace in general, become disenchanted with the government, nothing on earth is going to save them. In 1979, she was named to the Order of Canada, and in 1996, she was awarded the Order of Ontario. In 1982, an Ontario government office tower in Hamilton was named for her, and in 1992, Queen Elizabeth II bestowed on her the title Right Honourable, something usually reserved for the Prime Minister, Governor General, or Chief Justice. She would pass away on November 13, 2004, and on June 21, 2005, a stamp was issued in her honour. The First Woman Senator Following the ruling in 1929 that women were persons and could therefore sit in the Canadian Senate, it did not take long for the federal government to appoint a woman to the Senate. That woman was Corrine Wilson, and her story begins on February 4, 1885, when she was born in Montreal. In 1918, she moved with her family to Ottawa, where Wilson became heavily involved in volunteer work and working with political organizations to encourage women to get into politics. To that end, she helped found the 20th Century Liberal Association and the National Federal of Liberal Women of Canada. In 1930, due to her liberal background, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King appointed her as the first female senator to the Canadian Senate, only four months after the person's case judgment came down. In 1938, while serving as the president of the League of Nations Society of Canada, she spoke out against the appeasement of Hitler and when the Mackenzie King government resisted permitting Jewish refugees from Germany coming to Canada, she was able to arrange the acceptance of 100 orphans. In 1949, she was made Canada's first female delegate to the United Nations General Assembly, and she became the first woman to chair a Senate Standing Committee. In 1950, the French government presented her with the Cross of the Knight of the Legion of Honour for her work with the child refugees. In 1955, she became the first woman Deputy Speaker of the Canadian Senate. On March 3, 1962, she would pass away from a heart attack, and a school in Ontario was named for her. The First Female Lieutenant Governor The Lieutenant Governor is one of the most important posts in a province, but it would take until 1974 for a woman to serve as one in Canada. That woman was Pauline Mills McGibbon, who was born in Sarnia, Ontario on October 21, 1910. Studying at the University of Toronto, she would begin volunteering with various organizations, including the Daughters of the Empire, of which she would become president in 1963, serving until 1965. 
A major supporter of the arts, she also served as the president of the Dominion Drama Festival in 1948 and was the first woman to lead both the Canadian Conference of the Arts and the National Arts Centre. She was also the first woman to serve as a president of the University of Toronto Alumni Association from 1952 to 1953. She would also serve as an honorary colonel with the 25th Toronto Service Battalion. She was the director of Massey Hall and Roy Thompson Hall, and she would earn the Order of Canada in 1967 for her work in the arts and volunteer organizations. In 1988, she was awarded the Order of Ontario. Her biggest role would come on January 17, 1974, when she became the first female lieutenant governor in Canadian history and second in the British Commonwealth. She would serve in the post until September 15, 1980. Her main focus during her time as Lieutenant Governor was on the arts in the province, and she would pass away on December 14, 2001 in Toronto. The First Female Governor-General Since 1867, there have been 29 Governor-Generals, and of those, four have been women. But the first was Jeanne Sauvé, who took to the post in 1984 and survived through three Prime Ministers and a change in government to hold the post until 1990. Born in Saskatchewan and educated in Ottawa and Paris, she would begin working as a journalist for the CBC where she launched her successful radio show, Femina, before moving to television to focus on political topics in both French and English. In 1956, she was given her own television show called Opinions, which ran until 1963. In 1972, she ran for the Liberal Party in Montreal, winning the election and serving until 1984. During that time, she would serve as the Minister of the Environment and the Minister of Communications, and most notably as the Speaker of the House of Commons from 1980 to 1984, becoming the first woman to hold that post. As Speaker, she presided over debates on the new Constitution, the Energy Security Act, and more. In 1980, she spoke with the National about her role as Speaker and how she was still learning the ropes in the new position. The NDP caused a bit of a stir at the end of today's question period, too. Several NDP members got up and walked out of the House in protest against the way Jean Sauvé, the new speaker, is taking care of business. Bruce Cameron reports. As Speaker of the House of Commons, Jean Sauvé is the one who keeps the sometimes unruly members in order, settles disputes, and during the high-profile question period, decides who may ask a question. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Speaker. Because that's the time the opposition can make its most points. Usually, they're the ones who get recognized. Occasionally, though, a few Liberals get permission to ask few questions, too. And today, the NDP charged that those occasions have become too frequent. Sauvé doesn't deny that the Liberals have had a better chance recently. In the last weeks, more Liberals did get up. Uh, they have been more active. And since they had not been getting their share of questions before, when they did get up in greater numbers, I just had to recognize a little bit more. But the statistics there, when they get 5% of the questions during the whole time of this parliament, as compared to 68% and 27%, there's no unfairness there. Apart from the idea of cutting into their time, the opposition is also upset at the type of questions the Liberals ask. They're not asking questions to, to seek out information of benefit to their constituents. We believe that they are abusing uh, question period by, by asking questions which are basically uh, setting up ministers to, to, give, to make announcements. And uh, that, uh, that's not the role of question period. And the, the quality or the intention of the question has nothing to do with the chair. The chair doesn't 
uh, interfere into the quality of the question as for, to the quality of the answer, as a matter of fact. Uh, when a member is recognized, he asks his question. It, if it looks to the opposition parties that it's a planted question, this is of no concern to the chair. Part of Sove's problem is that she was sworn in as speaker only three months ago, and she says she's still learning, and she'll keep on trying to become a good speaker. Meanwhile, the NDP plan to keep close track of question period tomorrow to make sure she does. Bruce Cameron, CBC News, Ottawa. In December of 1983, it was announced that Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau had put forward Sauvé's name to Queen Elizabeth as his recommendation for the new Governor-General of Canada. She would be appointed on January 28, 1984, becoming the first female Governor-General in Canadian history and only the second in the Commonwealth. In speaking about the decision, Pierre Trudeau said, quote, It is right and proper that Her Majesty should finally have a woman representative here. She would serve in the role until 1990, during which time she welcomed Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, the Queen Mother, as well as the royal families of other countries such as Jordan, the Netherlands and Sweden. She was also on hand to welcome the Secretary General of the United Nations, the Presidents of France, China, the United States and Romania, as well as Pope John Paul II and Mother Teresa. She would also welcome the world to Canada during the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. Following her departure from the role in 1990, she would pass away in 1993 after a long battle from Hodgkin's lymphoma. In 1994, a stamp was issued in her honour, and today, a building in Kingston is named for her, as are seven schools and three organisations. Upon her death, the CBC paid tribute to her life. As we mentioned earlier, the tributes to Jeanne Sauvé have already begun. She has been called a woman of firsts, and she will perhaps be best remembered for her time as Governor-General. But as we hear from Jason Moskowitz, some of her biggest challenges came during her stint as Speaker of the House of Commons. After serving in Pierre Trudeau's cabinet through much of the 70s, Jeanne Sauvé came into real prominence in Ottawa when Trudeau made her Speaker of the Commons following the 1980 election. Being the first woman Speaker really meant something then, because of the fight Sauvé had to gain respectability. Thirteen years ago, the House of Commons was very much a man's world, and there was Jeanne Sauvé, the boss. Her first few months were plagued with problems. She had no legal experience. As a minister, she had never spent a lot of time in the Commons. At first, she really didn't understand the place. She made mistakes. One of her more memorable was when a shell-shocked Sauvé turned to Prime Minister Trudeau and called him the leader of the opposition. The place erupted in laughter. The ever-so-proud Sauvé stood humiliated. Then there was the time Parliament ground to a halt. The bells rang for almost two weeks. Many blame Sauvé for letting it get out of hand. But as time wore on, her toughness showed. Some of the men howled about her incompetence, and she took them on. The men who were screaming the loudest were the veteran MPs from all political parties who ran Parliament Hill back then. They ran it like it was their private fiefdom. There were few controls on hiring, spending, traveling, and partying. In the political fight of her life, Sauvé took them on, and at great personal cost, she reformed the administration of Parliament Hill from top to bottom. She was always very proud of those reforms she forced on the reluctant ones. Being the competitive person she was, she was really proud that she took on a group of stubborn men and beat them. Jason Moskowitz, CBC News, Ottawa. The first female premier. Despite the various inroads Canadian women made into the politics between the 1910s and 1980s, 
including as Governor General, it would not be until 1991 that the first female Premier would take office. Rita Johnston was born on April 22, 1935, in Melville, Saskatchewan, but would eventually find her way to British Columbia, where she entered politics as a city councillor for the Surrey City Council, followed by being elected to the British Columbia Legislature in 1983 in the riding of Surrey. After her re-election in 1986, she became a cabinet minister, serving in various roles including Minister of Municipal Affairs, Minister of State, and Minister of Transportation and Highways. In 1990, she was appointed as the Deputy Premier of the province, and following the resignation of the Premier on April 2, 1991, she became the Premier of the province, becoming the first female Premier in Canadian history. In July of that year, she would formally win the leadership role at the Social Credit Party Convention, and in October would go through her first election as Premier. Unfortunately, it was a disaster for her party, and her time as Premier would end on November 5, 1991 as did her time in provincial politics as she lost her own seat. During the campaign, part of the leadership debate was broadcast on CBC. But going into tonight's debate, the contest was undeniably between Harcourt and Johnston. How far would either go to score a political point? Would either one take any risks, or would they play it safe? User pay system where you pay at the door. Take your pick. <laughs> You're the one that has to come. Why don't the you stop scaring the because senior citizens of this province with your lies? Who you're going to tax? You have. You were the one that introduced the property purchase tax for first-time home buyers. That's to take right. it away now, when I voted against it in the first place, is a bit much, Mrs. Johnson. You shouldn't have introduced it and hurt young British Columbians trying to buy their first home in the first place. You're skating around it, but we want the numbers, Mike. We want the numbers. I've told you the numbers. The, you don't the bottom have line any is a balanced budget. We'll You're set tough priorities. To we'll set tough priorities above the line. And the bottom line is a balanced budget. You're you you this, won't give this, us the numbers. This it reminds me of the legislature, and here's a classic example of why nothing ever gets done in the province of British Columbia. Right here, you saw it All live right. on CBC. Well, and that at least got a laugh out of the reporters watching the debate with the spin doctors, House party advisors trying to put the best light on their leader. But how did the contenders themselves rate their performances? I came with two goals. One was to lay out the issues. I did that. I didn't succeed in my second uh, goal, which was to stop the sniping and the name-calling and the distortion. It wasn't my intention to scold, but uh, when, when you hear outright lies and, and untruths and innuendos continually for, for three weeks of a campaign, uh, and then uh, you're face-to-face -face on a, a platform, uh, it gets a little difficult to continue to take the kind of rubbish that was coming out of his mouth. I would not be making, making no apologies for her attacks in the debate. Johnston was demanding another face-off. But you know, Mike, there's still time for you to be honest with the people. We should debate again. I believe we should debate again. But Harcourt wasn't quite so eager. No, we've had the debate. I intend to get on with the rest of the election campaign. Are you worried? Thank you. What's the fear, Mike? I mean, what's, well, we what's, the, what's numbers, the harm? Mike. What's the harm in doing it again? Well, there's no harm whatsoever. You didn't I'm, tell uh, us anything I'm, tonight, I'm here Mike. tonight. I, I said I was going to be here tonight, and uh, I've enjoyed the debate. I've enjoyed the discussion. I've uh, gone with the issues that you asked me about and been outlining for the last uh, 19 days of this election campaign. I intend to continue that. And with that last exchange, the contenders retired to their own corners to lay out the battle plan for the final week. Cecilia Walters, CBC News, Vancouver. Today, she leads a quiet life in British Columbia, while also occasionally serving as a political advisor.
the first female prime minister. The biggest job in the land, maybe second to governor general, is that of prime minister. Over the course of Canada's history, there have been 26 prime ministers, with several serving multiple non-continuous terms. While today women have served in the roles I have mentioned multiple times, including as governor general, one woman has served as prime minister, and that was only for 132 days. For Kim Campbell, serving as the first female prime minister is a massive accomplishment, but it was only part of her entire political and judicial career. Kim Campbell deserves an entire episode of her own, as do all the women in this episode, and she will be receiving it. On my podcast from John to Justin, I'll be looking at her life and career in episode 19. But for now, I'm going to just touch on the many accomplishments of our first female Prime Minister. Born on March 10, 1947 in Port Alberni, British Columbia, Kim Campbell would begin her political life with a degree in political science from the University of British Columbia, followed by doctoral studies at the London School of Economics. From 1975 to 1981, she would lecture on political science at the University of British Columbia and the Vancouver Community College, before choosing to start a career as a lawyer. The next step in her political career began when she served on the Vancouver School Board from 1981 to 1984. In 1985, she became the Executive Director in the office of Premier Bill Bennett before making a bid for the leadership of the Social Credit Party, which failed. In 1986, she would be elected to the provincial legislature, but issues with the party and its stance on abortion resulted in her leaving provincial politics. The loss to British Columbia's legislature was a gain to the House of Commons. In November of 1988, she would be elected to the House of Commons, and one year later was the Minister of State for Indian Affairs and Northern Development. From 1990 to 1992, she served as the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General, bringing in reform legislation on many issues including abortion, sexual assault, and firearms control. One of the most important laws she introduced protected a victim of sexual assault from having their past explored during a trial. In January of 1993, she was moved to become the Minister of National Defence one month before Prime Minister Brian Mulroney retired. In the leadership race, Campbell put her name forward and was chosen as the leader of the Conservative Party. This made her, on June 25, 1993, the first female Prime Minister in Canadian history and also one of the youngest women to ever assume the role of Prime Minister anywhere in the world. Upon her win as the new leader of the party, and as Canada's first female Prime Minister, she spoke to supporters. Thank you. Thank you very much, dear friends. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a feeling that this time that I'm standing on the podium, the red light's not going to go on when I speak. <laughs> I want to begin, first of all, by simply saying thank you. Thank you to all of you who have worked so hard and so effectively on my behalf. And thank you to those of you who have put your trust in me. You have honored me by your trust, and I return it with my complete commitment to you to lead this party in a great tradition.
Allow me to begin by thanking all the thousands of volunteers who, who have shown their tremendous confidence in me by working so hard in my campaign. Our victory is their victory. This is your victory, won by your energy and your dedication, and I share it with each and every one of you. I want to pay particular thanks to the people in the Riding Association of Vancouver Centre who believed in me for so long. They have obviously a very special place in my heart, and I want to thank them for having faith in me for so long and for helping me to believe that one can fight tough campaigns. After 1988, anything seemed possible. I want to also express a debt of gratitude to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Prime Minister, your confidence in me gave me a chance to meet some of the greatest challenges in my life and to grow and learn and to become even more in love with the political process in this wonderful country. And I want to say to everyone here that Brian Mulroney taught us some very important lessons as a party. He taught us how to think long term. He taught us how to be united. And he taught us how to win. As Prime Minister, she began to reorganize the Cabinet, reducing it from 35 ministers to 23, consolidating several ministries and enjoying a 51% approval rating, making her the most popular Prime Minister in 30 years. Unfortunately, while she was very popular, the Mulroney government had seen its support disintegrate in the West and in Quebec. Unable to distance herself from the unpopular Brian Mulroney, the Conservative Party would suffer the biggest defeat in Canadian history, nearly being wiped out completely in Alberta. In that election, only two Conservatives remained in the House of Commons, and Campbell herself lost her seat. The PC party still finished with 2 million votes, third in the popular vote, and only two percentage points behind the Reform Party. But as a result of the first-past-the-post system, the PCs did not get enough support in enough areas to gain individual ridings. Many see Campbell as a capable leader who was given the reins of a sinking ship with little she could do to save it. One humorist said that when she was given leadership it was like, quote, taking over the party leadership from Brian was a lot like taking over the controls of a 747 just before it plunges into the Rockies. On December 13, 1993, Campbell resigned as leader of the party. The World at Six reported on her resignation as a leader of the party. In Ottawa, it's official, Kim Campbell has resigned. She is stepping down as leader of the federal Tories. Her announcement comes six months to the day that she was chosen as party leader. She gave no reasons for her decision other than to say they are complex. Just a few weeks ago, Campbell hinted she would be staying on until June, but some party members have been complaining about her leadership and they claim to have helped her change her mind. 
As Laura Lynch reports, the party will now turn its attention to rebuilding under a new leader. Last June, my party chose me as its leader at, the national convention, at a national convention here in Ottawa. It was only six months ago that Kim Campbell stood before a cheering crowd of Tories. Many saw her as their ticket to re-election, their best chance to maintain Brian Mulroney's nine-year grip on power. Today, Kim Campbell sat before a room full of reporters trying to rationalize, trying to make a virtue out of losing power and losing it badly. What our party has now is a remarkable opportunity, if we're wise enough to seize it. Freed from the constraints of government, which puts an enormous pressure on any political organization because you can't set your own agenda. You have to deal with the realities before you and things arise and situations occur that take your time and energy and you have to deal with them and that's part of governing. Similarly, even being the official opposition, much of your agenda is set by what government does. But others in the party aren't viewing the loss or Campbell in such charitable terms. They blame her and they wanted her out. Today they got their wish. Some, like Alberta Premier Ralph Klein, are welcoming the move. I think it was probably a good thing. Uh, the, part, the party needs a, a fresh new start, and uh, now, I guess, is, is the time. Campbell called Klein this morning to warn him of her impending resignation, but she didn't inform one of only two Tory MPs elected to the Commons. Elsie Wayne of St. John was clearly frustrated to have to learn from reporters that her leader was leaving, and clearly annoyed at the disarray the party is in. Right now, I, I guess I'm the deputy something, and the deputy this, and the deputy that, and there's only two of us, so I don't know what a team we've got going here, but we've got two of us, and we've got a lot of work to do. The party's executive is expected to ask Jean Charest to take over as interim leader tomorrow. He's expected to say yes. Today, though, he was saying very little. I have not been asked, and there'll be a national executive uh, meeting uh, tomorrow morning, and uh, we'll take it from there. As for Campbell's future, she's talking about teaching, writing a book, maybe even doing commentary in the media. Though she says it's unlikely she'll return to public life, Campbell still has one sobering reminder of the costs of being a politician. Her former campaign manager, defeated MP Ross Reed, says she still has a debt of about $250,000 to the party, a debt left over from the days when she won the Tory leadership. Laura Lynch, CBC News, Ottawa. That same year, Chatelaine named her Woman of the Year, and she would publish her autobiography in 1996. From that year until 2000, she was the Consul General to Los Angeles. From 1999 to 2003, she chaired the Council of Women World Leaders, and from 2003 to 2005, she was the president of the International Women's Forum. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the various women who made political history in Canada. If you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. Again, check out From John to Justin and Pucks and Cups, my two new podcasts that are out this week. If you want to support the podcast, you can. For $3 a month, just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. Every dollar you give helps keep the podcast going. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Thanks, and we'll see you again 
next time.